0: The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles, please, the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, and verse 20 and 21. We're just going to focus on those verses this morning. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul is wrapping up this great prayer, and he pauses at the end to give a benediction, a words of glory to God. And like as so often of Paul, he begins his thoughts... And then he sort of interrupts himself and expands on one idea for a bunch of words. And this is one of these great statements of praise and worship to God that Paul makes. And he writes several of them throughout his letters. But these are the words of Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To Him be glory. What does it mean to worship the Lord our God? What does those words really mean? What is a service of worship really all about? To God be the glory is really an excellent summary of what worship really is. To God be glory in everything. I was listening to a sermon driving back and forth on the Monash, and it was, the question was asked by Paul Washer regarding Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. It says there that while they were fostering and ministering to the Lord, and he stopped and he said, What do you think that means, ministering to the Lord? And I'm driving along and I shout back at the car, worship. It just means worship. And he went on to explain that the idea given there is ministering to the Lord is to to speak back and forth, one person to another, one to a group or a group to one, whatever, speaking of the attributes and the glories and the perfections, announcing them back and forth so that those Spoken words about God would minister to the very heart of God himself. When we come together Sunday morning by Sunday morning to worship the Lord, our goal is, in a sense, to minister to the heart of God. To proclaim, to declare, to make forth his glories and his perfections known one to the other. Listen to what the seraphim cry in an unceasing, responding cry, one to the other. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. They're repeating to one another his attributes and his perfections. That's the idea of what we do. And the idea in the words there isn't just they said it once and that was it. The idea is that one seraphim said it to another, and another said it to another, and the heavens just resound back and forth with their cries, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They're accounting to one another the works of God in creation. And one cried out to another, that's that back and forth reverent pronouncement of God's perfections and works. Paul says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. We cannot add to God's glory. We can only recognize the glory in God's actions and God's attributes and God's perfections. We cannot remove or detract or tear away from God's glory. The Bible says that he will be glorified in all of us. We can only recognize and in a sense we reflect In the way we speak, in the way we worship, we reflect the glory of God to each other and up to God himself. We can only recognize and reflect it. Sunday morning church services, we've taken a word out there. It should be Sunday morning worship services in the church. We come together to worship. We have a misunderstanding of what worship is. Worship is not God's call to come and be entertained. Worship is not God's call to come and enjoy our favorite music. Worship is not fundamentally God's call to come and have our needs met. I totally believe in a seeker-sensitive church. But probably not in the way you've heard that phrase before. I absolutely believe all of us should be here seeker-sensitive. There is one who is seeking. He is God Himself. And we ought to be, as a people, as both individual and a corporate body, we ought to be sensitive to what He is seeking from us. He is seeking from us worship that is in spirit and in truth. We are here... Not as spectators, not as observers of worship. We are all called to participate in worship. God is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. We are here to serve and honor and love the Lord in worship. We are all here to serve in worship. May your particular role or my particular role from one Sunday to the next may not be a vocal public role. It may be that God has chosen to keep your thoughts or my thoughts, the meditations of our heart, absolutely to himself, not sharing them with anybody. Are we called any less to worship because we remain silent or because we speak or act? And the answer is no. We are all called to worship the Lord our God. We are here to minister to the Lord's heart in worship by reflecting back to Him in words and songs and prayers and Scripture texts. God's glory, His wonders, His perfection. Worship is God's call to us to pronounce with our voice in song and through Scripture and in prayer. The tell forth His glories to proclaim Jesus Christ, His Son, our Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Old Testament Especially the Psalms give us the greatest fuel with which to burn hot in our worship and ministering to the Lord. I want you to listen to a sample of them. These are all attributes that are spoken in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God inspired men to write these things. In Exodus 15 and verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. In Exodus 18 verse 11, the Lord is greater than all gods. In Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity. In Joshua 4, 24, the hand of the Lord is mighty. The Lord is peace in Judges 6:24. In 2 Samuel 2, 20, or 22, verse 2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Just speaking these things. Putting them out so that you and I can hear them with our voice. So that God can listen from heaven and hear his perfections being stated. Is worship to God's ears. It ministers to the heart of God. It reminds God of who he is as the great God above all gods. In Psalm 10, verse 6, the Lord is the king forever and ever. In Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is our shepherd. In Psalm 24, verse 8, the Lord is good and upright. In Psalm 48, verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In Psalm 99, verse 9, the Bible says, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his holy feet, for holy is the Lord our God. That is not just the God of the Old Testament in a tabernacle, hiding away somewhere. That is the God that you and I have come to worship this morning. The Bible promises us where two or three are gathered together, He is here in the midst of us. That same God of the Old Testament is the one that's gathered here with us, hearing the thoughts of our hearts and hearing the words of our mouth and considering what we are thinking in our hearts and our voices and taking it as worship from Him. God has called you here and brought you here that you might worship first and foremost. All those perfections pronounced worships God. To God be the glory. That's the simple statement of our text and our message. The Bible has so much to say about the glory of God. It's worth repeating all of those things. In fact, it's worship to repeat these things about the glory of God. In Exodus 24, verse 17, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on a mountaintop. In Exodus 34, 5 to 7, the Bible says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as Moses called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him. And listen, even God involves himself in worship. This is hard to get your head around, but look at this. What does he do as he passes before Moses? He speaks. What's he speak? he says, uh, he proclaims the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions and sins. God is literally pronouncing to Moses and through the page of scripture to us as well. This is the God that I am. This is what I'm like compassionate, loving kindness, slow to anger, and so on. In Joshua 7.19, the Bible says that Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to God, the God of Israel. Give praise to Him and tell now what you have done. God is glorified even when we confess our sin because we are saying, He's right, I'm wrong. And that glorifies Him. It's a long passage out of First Chronicles, but there's so much. It's probably one of the richest passages on worship. Listen to this. In First Chronicles sixteen, twenty-four to thirty-four, it says, Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him. All the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all it contains, let the fields exalt and all that's in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting like the writer just can't stop. He just wants to put more down. This is the greatness of our God. Again, this is not just the God of the Old Testament. This is the God that we have come into this place every Sunday morning. We're coming here with the express purpose of worshiping this God. Look at the perfections mentioned there. His glory, His greatness, His strength, His splendor, His majesty, His joy, His holiness, His loving kindness, His kingly reign, His creative glory. You notice all woven through it? The commands? Tell, praise, fear, ascribe, worship, rejoice, exalt, sing, be glad, tremble, give thanks, bring offerings, come. All those words are describing how we are to respond when we come to worship the Lord our God. The psalmist said, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. The psalmist is saying, Lord, glorify your name, just like we were singing Lord glorify your name. You glorify your name, O God, not to us. The great tragedy is what's happening in many church movements is the focus is moving away from God and more and more on the worshipers or the performers and the audience, and all of a sudden the focus has totally shifted and the words of Paul have been put aside. It's no longer now to him be glory, it's now now to us be glory. But the psalmist says, no, he says, no, unto you, O God, be glory. Isaiah 43, verse 7, the Bible says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. Why were you created? So you could sing? Praise God that you were singing. I wasn't created to sing. You all know that by now. Were you created just to preach? I was not created just to preach. Were you created to do something? No. You were created for one purpose overall, and that is to glorify God's name in everything you do so that as Sinith plays his violin beautifully, he can glorify the Lord in a way I could never do. And as you work with your hands and as you speak the gospel to your friends, as you bow on your knees in prayer in a closet to lift up your heart to God, you can worship God there. You were created for that one purpose that you might glorify God. There's so much more. There's more verses I could read, but I'm just going to move on. You may be asking yourself, why is he quoting so many verses about this? And the reality is, I just can't say it any better than the Bible does. Couldn't possibly say it better. And I'd rather just fill up the time and the air and your ears with the words of Scripture because they are so powerful in and of themselves. So here's my plan for the message, the rest of it, in the time we've got. I want to just work my way through mostly verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 3 and unpack what it is that Paul says about the God he is glorifying. Notice the logic of his words. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Most of that, except for the first three words, is what we call a relative clause. It basically, it's a big long clause that describes the hymn. Paul says, now to him, which him? Well, let me tell you, to the one who is able to do far, abundant, far more abundantly and so on. So he's describing the God that he is worshiping. And I want to unpack who it is that he is giving glory to, who it is he is calling us to give glory to, go, to him. So my goal for this is, as you listen to this, as we all listen to it, and the heaps of scripture I'm going to keep reading, my goal is that you would lift up your heart. Where you're sitting, in worship to God, let your heart soar and sing in silent, joyful worship to God. My goal is like the disciples in Acts 13, we will all this morning minister not so much to each other's hearts, but minister to the Lord's heart in worship of Him. And that we would give glory to Him this morning as we're here. There's an outline there. Glory to God, number one, who is alone worthy of praise. Glory to God, number two, who is able beyond all. Number three, glory to God who accomplishes his purposes. And glory to God who answers our prayers. I want to read the verse again to you. The verse is in a different translation. This is R.C.H. Lenski, who was a Lutheran scholar and an expert in the Greek. And he puts it slightly differently, and I want you to listen close. He says... Now to him who is able beyond everything to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or conceive according to the power operating in us, to him, to him the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all the generations of the eons of the eons. Amen. Now to him who is able. Number one, God alone is worthy of praise. He says, to him who is exceedingly abundantly and so on. There is only one. If you read that description of the one that Paul is ascribing praise to, there is only one that fits that description. It is the Lord our God. And Paul is saying, glory be to God and to him alone. Listen. God will not share His glory with another person. God is jealous for the glory and the fame of His own name. No man can rob God of His glory. The Bible says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. In Isaiah 48, verse 11, He says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act, for how can my name be profaned? In other words, he says, how can my name be allowed to be made common? Even used as a swear word. He says, for my own sake I will act, and my glory I will not give to another. There is only one God worthy of praise. There is no other God like our God. The Bible says, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. There is no one like the Lord our God. None begins to compare. None lines up with him. He alone is worthy of praise, brothers and sisters. To God be glory alone, the highest of glory. Secondly, God, to God is glorious. Sorry, who is able to do beyond all things? Now, notice most English translations combine the able and the to do into one phrase. In the original, they're actually separated into two phrases. We do it because they kind of link together. But when we bring them together, we actually take and we lose a little bit of the flavor of what Paul is actually saying. He says, now to the one who is able beyond all, God is the one who possesses the greatest ability. God's ability is immeasurable. It surpasses all other things. It's beyond everything. God's ability is seen in the wonder, on the glory and the infinity of His creation, of the whole universe. God's ability is beyond everything. Listen to what the Bible says just about Jesus. In Matthew 9, 28, Jesus is able to give sight to the blind. In Matthew 10, 28, God is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Romans 16, 25, God is able to establish us according to the preaching of his word. In Hebrews 2, 18, Jesus Christ is able to rescue us who are being tempted. Listen, you're suffering, you're dealing with temptation. There is a God who is able to deliver you. Bible even says he provides a way of escape that we may escape from it. He's able to deliver us. In Hebrews 7:25, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God. In Jude 24, he's able to keep us from stumbling and to make excuse me. Excuse me. He's able to keep us from stumbling and make us to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with joy. Did you catch that? You're struggling with your walk. You're wondering, is God ever going to finish the work that He began in me? Why am I struggling with the same things day in and day out? And Jude says, listen, there is one and He is able to keep you from stumbling. The idea of stumbling is so as to fall and not get up. He is able to make us stand in the presence of His glory. You know what that means? doesn't mean just to physically stand there. It means to stand and stay steadfast and rooted in the presence of God, enjoying His glory forever. Psalm 1 says, The wicked will not stand the day of judgment, but we stand in the presence of God. Why? Because we've managed to do it all our lives, do all the right things, win all the right points, check all the boxes, do all the religious stuff. No. Because by faith in the living God, trusting Him to do what He alone can do, He can make us stand. He can make us, if you like, survive His judgment, which will come, brothers and sisters. In Revelation 5, verse 3-5, to this is an amazing one. I love this one. Jesus Christ the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God stands. He has prevailed and He alone is able to loose the seals. Remember the story? And the angel cries out for one to open the seals of the book. And no one in all of heaven and earth is found. And John weeps because nobody can open the book. And the angel touches John and says, Look, behold, The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God has prevailed. He's able. He is the only one in all of existence that's able to open the books and loose the seals and roll out the scroll and read the finality of God's judgment and God's doings. This is the God that we are privileged to call our Father. This is the one to whom we pray. This is the one we have gathered this day and every Sunday to worship. This is the God we worship and love and serve in all that we do. There is no other in all of existence who has the ability, the power to accomplish these things. God's ability is infinitely greater than any other. Our cancer is child's play to God. A financial struggles are a child's play to him. He has the ability to deal with them in just the same way he created the universe without breaking a sweat or lifting a finger. He can do it all. He's able. Trust God. Whatever you're struggling through, whatever personal situation you're in the middle of that is breaking your heart, trust the Lord. He is able. To deliver you, trust the Lord. He's able to set you free from whatever sin you cannot get rid of. He's able. Trust Him. Brothers and sisters, whatever you're working through, trust the Lord. He's able to make it work, to work it out. The thing about ability, though, is when I was growing up and going to school, the teachers would often take my report card, you know has the ability, if only he'd try harder. You know, <laughs> I see people going, yeah, I remember those report cards. He has the ability. He could do it if he wanted to. He just doesn't seem to want to. Maybe your mom and dad can give him some little encouragement to, to do it. I think someone else has been there. <laughs> but you know the amazing thing? the thing that we glorify God for this morning is not only does He have the ability, He accomplishes all that He desires and all that He plans. He is able, Paul says, He's able beyond all to do exceedingly abundantly. Which means what? Which means all of His works are there. He has finished every work He started. It's a great phrase in Genesis, and God rested because he had finished his work of creation. God started a work in you and he started a work in me. He is going to finish it. God started this whole program of salvation and justification and sanctification and glorification. Jesus went back to glory and said, I will come again. He promised it. He has the ability. He will do it. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly. That's our second point. Glory to God who accomplishes all His purposes. God is the God of perfection. Every detail will be accomplished exactly according to his will, his purpose, his timing, and his plan. And he uses whomever he chooses to accomplish that will. And the lovely thing about God is he picks the most unlikely of people and persons and places to do those things. I love the fact that God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. I love the fact that he chooses the ignoble to shame the noble and the poor to shame the rich. I love the fact that he takes the things that are not and he makes them the things that are. First Corinthians chapter 1, the end of the chapter there. What are the works of God? The Scriptures repeatedly call us to give thanks, to tell of the greatness of God's work. Here again is a sampling of some of these things. So glory to God this morning for all of these works. Listen, in Genesis 1, we see his work of creation, which he has done and accomplished. He finished it. In Galatians 3, the Bible says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. When he shouted out, it's finished. He had done it. Not only was Jesus the only one able to rescue us, he is the only one who did rescue us. He finished that work. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. I said last week, I'll say it again, we are both positionally sanctified in God's sight and we are being sanctified. But Paul writes of it, has been So even though it's still in the process, still being worked through, God sees it as already done. He's so sure of the finished work he has in every single one of us who know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ that he says, it's already done. I look down, I see my believing brother, my believing sister sitting there in church side by side, and I already see that work finished in them. He started a work to make you like Jesus, and He's going to finish. And the Father says, I see it is already done in your life. His work of sanctification. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 tells us He's coming back to judge all the earth. That work, one day He will finish. You know, brothers and sisters, we shudder at the great tragedies in this world. Tsunamis and volcanoes and earthquakes. The shuddering that will go through the hearts of all of men in that day when God finishes his work of judgment is beyond anything that any of us could even conceive of. God will judge this world. Every single person ever born will stand before God and he will make a decision, sheep or goat, goat or sheep. And it will be too late. And all the goats that are pushed into darkness and eternity lost will shout out, glory to God, He is right and we are wrong. The Bible says it. He has got a work of judgment which is yet to be done, but He will do it. In Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 23, we see his work of glorifying the Son. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, we see his work of healing. The Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. He is going to heal every single disease and sickness and problem. My friend Heather, who died of cancer about five years ago now, walks around in glory absolutely cancer-free, rid of it, because the work of healing is finished in her What manner does God do all these works? He is the one who does exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or imagine. The Bible says he does all things well, very well. Glory to God who does all those things. There's so many more verses there. I just want to share, but you know what? I'm going to share them anyway. Exodus 15, verse 11. Listen to what the Bible says. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Deuteronomy 3, 24, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Psalm 40, verse 5, many, O Lord, are the wonders you have done, you have accomplished. Psalm 66, verse 5 and 6, come and see the works of the Lord. Who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men? He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on fort. Therefore, let us rejoice in him. Who is this God that Paul is giving praise to? Who is the God that he is saying glory to him? It's the one who has the ability. And it's the one who works and does and accomplishes all of his will and purposes and plans. The scope of God's accomplishments are so lavish. He does exceedingly abundantly. Microscopically, I love this. The scientists, right? They're they're so smart. I can't imagine the brain size that some of those guys have. I'm a carpenter, right? It's pretty obvious. Uh, And they get their microscopes out and they say, Look at this. Look at this. We found it's the smallest building block you can possibly have. And they all get around, Woo, wow, look, it's it's an atom. And they're all ooing and ahing and they're all going away to get some coffee talking about the atom. And one leans over and goes, And he gets a little close. Guys, come back. There's something smaller. We missed it. And they get a bigger microscope and they get all around that one. They get zooming a bit lower and they go, oh, look at that. It's so cool. Subatomic particles. And they go away to have coffee and one leans over and goes, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's a bit more down there. We haven't seen that yet. And the problem is they can't build big enough microscopes to see deep enough to see all the work that God has done. It's still beyond the scope of man to see it. Same guys up in a telescope in in the mountaintop. Look at this giant scope. We just saw Canis Majoris, one quadrillion times the size of the sun that we worship, not worship, we see outside there. And they say, look at that. It's a quadrillion times. It's huge. And someone else goes, hey, did you look behind that one? There's a bigger one. And the problem is, no matter how big the telescope they build, they cannot see to the ends of what God has created. He spoke it into existence. That staggers my mind. This is the God that we pray. This is the one that we have come to worship. Who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, be all we can imagine. I was watching a documentary about Einstein the other day and how he was trying to formulate theories of space and time and all that. Again, not getting much in here, but sort of enjoying the story anyway. And he said that, you know, he, a part of it, he had to kind of imagine how this would work. And then as he imagined, he kind of created mathematical theories and writings to try and somehow support his theories. And he had to find ways to test these theories in, in, well, there isn't a big enough laboratory in the sky to make it. So he had to kind of find a way. And as much as he imagined, God could do greater. And the greatest astrophysicists alive, whoever they are, the Christian ones, not the ungodly ones, are still going, there's more, there's more, there's so much more. Mankind cannot see to the edges of God's creation of the universe. And the Bible says he unrolled it like a scroll. And some smart guys figured out that the universe is massively expanding, kind of like a scroll unrolls. (laughs) And the Bible said it, what, 4,000 years ago. This is the God that we have come to worship. He's able to do what fuels our prayer? There's more I want to share. But I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because I just I have to. He talks about answering our prayers. And you know, I read the book of Genesis and what does it say? God listened to the voice of Leah. She was a woman. And with great sadness. At those times, in those places, women were not heard. But the Bible records that God heard the prayer of Leah. The Bible heard, God heard, sorry, the groanings of Israel in Egypt. In Joshua 10, uh, Joshua spoke to God and prayed that the sun would stand still. And the Lord God listened to the voice of a man so as to obey him. And the sun stood still. God, who is infinite, bent his ear in incredible grace and condescension like a great big man getting down on his hands and knees to listen to a little tiny child's voice. Only that destroys the picture because obviously God is infinitely greater than a big man and we are infinitely smaller than a little baby in that sense. But he condescends to hear. This is the God that Paul says, look, we give him glory. I'm urging you to pray, to cry out to God. God. To fill us with all the fullness of God as we saw last week. To strengthen us with power in the inner man. This is the one we are praying to. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we come in this place Sunday morning after Sunday morning to worship this God. Shame on us. When we get in the way. I'm I'm saying us. Shame on us. Shame when I'm more concerned about how much time I have to preach. Shame on me when I take more time than I should. Shame on us when we're too busy trying to make sure everybody can see us and hear us so that we obscure their view of God Almighty. This is the God that we have come to worship. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think or even imagine. That's what the word means there. 1 Kings 18, top of Mount Carmel, Elijah cried out to God at the time of the evening sacrifice. And God heard and God glorified himself before all the people by sending fire from heaven that licked up the water around the altar trench. In James 5:17, Elijah prayed and God of heaven heard and shut up the heavens from pouring out rain. Prayer that is offered in faith and in humility and in worship is heard by God in heaven. When we hear the prayers of Scripture and we cry out to God to save us from the wrath which is to come, when we hear and we cry out to God to revive us according to His Word, and we cry out to God to strengthen us with power in the inner man, and we cry out to God... for for Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith, for us to have the strength to grasp and know the immense love of Christ, the Bible says that God hears those prayers. Not only does he hear them, he is able beyond all to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask when we ask that. He's also able to do beyond what we think. You remember the story of William Carey? Some of you know the story of William Carey, missionary to India back in the, I guess, 17, 1800s, thereabouts. He was a, a poor cobbler. Uh, he, he was poor as poor could be. He was so poor, he couldn't even keep the dirt on his clothes. He was just he was poor. And he had a, a chart. He was a cobbler. You know what a cobbler is? The guy that fixes shoes back in those days, nailing on the shoe and sewing the leather and stuff. And he had nothing. And he drew a big map on the wall above his cobbler's bench. And he and another fellow shared the same workshop. And And the owner of the shop was a Christian. And they would often talk about God and theology and Christ as they worked together. And the other fellow was not a Christian. And William Carey drew on the wall this big map and he sketched in all the places that had not been reached for the gospel yet. And he began to pray that God would reach those places with the gospel and that God would use him to reach those places. And his friend looked at him and said, What can God do with a little poor cobbler? And I'm convinced that God leaned over from heaven and said, Just you watch. And God took William Carey and he made him a pastor taught him how to preach, sent him off to India, and he studied botany, plants and animals and bugs and stuff, and he got a Ph.D. in botany. And beyond all these things, you know he did? He translated the Bible into 44 Indian languages. I can't imagine. I can barely learn Greek and Hebrew enough to get myself through college. 44 languages. Do you know what William Carey did? He dared to dream and pray Big things from God. Brothers and sisters, is it possible when we gather to pray that we pray and ask God to do the things that we think we can do instead of praying and asking God to do the things only He can do? Is it wrong to pray for God to revive this church? Can God revive this church? Absolutely. I don't mean revive as in fill the seats with people. That's easy. A good marketing campaign and some a paint job, and we probably could do that ourselves. I mean revive as in real revival. Men and women crying out to God for salvation. Men and women confessing their sins. Men and women reconciling relationships that have been torn apart by pride and selfishness. Men and women that are coming together Loving each other as Christ loved them. Men and women on fire for Jesus Christ. Can God do that in this church? That and exceedingly abundantly beyond that. Can we pray for the revival and the salvation, not just of one person in Noble Park, but the whole of the population of Noble Park? Oh, don't get all crazy on us now. Go all radical and start praying for everybody to get saved. I couldn't tell you what I think of that comment. I'm absolutely convinced, convinced that God is able to save every single person in Noble Park and Keysborough and Springvale and Victoria and New South Wales and around the whole face of the globe. The question, brothers and sisters, is this. We come to, to worship here to glorify God. But Paul is also talking about prayer here. And I wanted to make God as big as I could in your eyes, by pointing you to Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, because that's how we see how big God is. But there's a practical outworking of it too. That when we begin to pray, and pray and ask for the things that Paul asks for, and pray and ask according to the imaginings of our heart. Now, there's a big... Caution that goes with this. And I'll tell you that in a second. But praying according to the imaginings of our heart that God would do those things. Awaken the whole of Noble Park so that the brothels are shut down. The police have nothing to do. The crime goes down. It all changes radically. This whole community becomes a place on fire for Jesus Christ. The caution that goes with that praying according to our imaginings is this... I hate the prosperity gospel that takes verses like this and says, Now, to him who is able to do abundantly beyond all we ask or think, you know, I'd like a Ferrari, but I'll take a Lamborghini. You know, I'd like to have a thousand dollars, but I'll take a million. The prosperity gospel, I'll say his name, Joel Osteen, and people like him who stand there in their pulpit and preach that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and wise and all that other stuff. They radically abuse verses like this. They portray God as little more than a massive bank machine that just hands out $100 bills to people who pray the right way to get what they want. What did James say? You have not because you ask not or you ask amiss to spend on your lusts. That's the exact answer back to those guys. This verse here, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. The ask or think part is not just the random imaginings of any ungodly mind. It's the thinking that's of a godly mind, the desires for God to be glorified. So we pray, oh God, revive this church. Light a fire in this church. The men and women here will be crying out to God for forgiveness. Men and women in this church will be repenting of sin and putting it aside and reconciling broken relationships. Cry out for those things because those are the things that God obtains glory from his name for his name when he answers them. We cry out to God to save the whole place of Noble Park because God will be glorified in that. And it may may very well be that God will take the lives of some of us in the process because great blessing usually comes with great cost and great suffering. This is the God that we have gathered to worship. This is the God who hears our prayers. And this is the God who is able to answer exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. What an amazing God we have this morning. Amen. Leah, could we play glorify the name again? Is that okay? Thanks. We're going to ask you to stand and pray, and then we're going to sing that glorify your name again, and then we're going to sing the benediction, and we'll be done for the morning. Thank you.